these are not too bad. Pretty good. First episode. Pilot episode. Pilot episode. The test run. The dry run. The, the, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for all of the sound checking, getting it set up, bringing the microphone. You're welcome. I would not know how to start this yeah. or do it at all. Yeah. Well, it was, a, it was a long journey here. Oh. This is our journey. Our but, journey. Yeah. But it'll only get better because we're going to find a way around some of the hiccups that were a real pain in the ass for the last 45 minutes. Hey, you said don't mention that. You said I'm allowed to own up to my <laughs> mistakes. Um Okay, okay, okay. As okay. long as they're not published in any kind of way mm -hmm. that people can hear about it, I'm okay with that. <laughs> oh, good. Good, because this, uh, this uh, media I'm using to tell this story is absolutely not only for your ears. Are, right. you, are you ready, though? Oh, I'm all set. I'm all set. I'm ready to go. I have to burp, but I'm ready to go. <laughs> Quick. Quick mute it. False it'll alarm, false burp, false burp. It'll be a surprise. Okay, so uh, now that you didn't burp, I'm going to go. Picture this, if you will. November 12th, 1961. In America. Okay? America. It's a Sunday. Under the sign of Scorpio. The president is JFK. People are listening to Big Bad John by Jimmy Dean. His latest flame and little sister by Elvis Presley are charting in the top five. Flower Drum Song is the most viewed movie, and The Edge of Sadness by Edwin O'Connor is one of the best-selling books. It's a warm Florida night. And The Bluebell, a 60-foot twin-masted sailing catch, began its return to Fort Lauderdale from the Bahamas. You know what a catch is? Depends. It could be like lobster. It can be <laughs> salmon. It's a 60-foot twin-masted sailing catch. That was my second guess. And it means that it's two-masted. Mm. So if it's a catch means two-masted. Quite the catch. Yeah. And if it's twin-masted, that means four. Okay. So twin-masted catch has, it has four masts. Okay. At around 9 p.m., 11-year-old Terry Jo Dupralt heads below deck to her sleeping quarters, leaving her parents, her siblings, the ship's captain, the captain's wife, on deck. Now approximately two hours later, she's awakened by the sounds of heavy footfalls above and her brother screaming and calling for her father. She decides to investigate and makes a horrific discovery. Mm. This is the story of the sea orphan. In 1961, 11-year-old Terry Jo Duperalt was a girl who loved animals and her family and enjoyed spending time in the wooded areas around her home in Green Bay, Wisconsin, pretending to be Tarzan swinging through the forest. Terry Jo Duperalt's father, his name is Arthur, he's 40 years old, and her mother, Jean, is 38 years old. She has two siblings, an older brother named Brian, who's 14, and a younger sister named Renee, who's 7. Arthur, the father served in World War II, and went on to become a successful contact lens optometrist, which I feel like was prestigious as fuck in 1961. Oh, yeah. Like, and you would need to be, like, a specialist because, 
like now we're lucky we just order online and get those soft lenses but in the 60s you they were hard and you had to like have tools and stuff to put them into your eyes that's horrid so i mean he was doing the damn thing though yeah i'm not i'm not going to complain about my contacts being dry anymore at least they're not rigid (laughs) exactly yeah during his World War II service, he had sailed on the waters of South Florida and always dreamed of taking his family on a one-year-long cruise, sailing the tropic seas from island to island. And unfortunately, I couldn't find any like of these cool details about Terry Joe's mother and siblings, which would be nice. For years, Arthur and Jean saved for this family vacation, and by the summer of 1961, they had saved up enough money to head south for the winter and spend one of those winter weeks living at sea abroad, a chartered yacht sailing from the Florida Keys to the Bahamas, docking at several chosen locations and planning to extend the sailing trip if everyone was enjoying themselves. So like the plan in their hearts was always like, yo, one day we're going to go for like a year long cruise together. But they never done anything like it before. So they're like, we want to get like out of the Wisconsin winters. We're going to go down there for the winter, but we'll spend one of those weeks sailing just to see how we all kind of dig it. Mm. Okay. So in early November, the family arrived in Fort Lauderdale and chartered the Blue Bell from the Bahia Mar Marina for $515. Wow. Okay, how much is that? In today, that's, a, that's a lot. In today's money. That's, that's a good amount. So for one week to charter this yacht, it was $515 in 1961. And in today, that would be $4,501. Mm, mm. And this is... um. American money. Oh. Oh. So it would be even more expensive and Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Arthur hired a well-known local yachtsman, 44-year-old Julian Harvey, to skipper the vessel for $100 per day. So for one week, he was paying this Julian guy, in today's money, $874 a day. That's a pretty good amount of money. That's insane. That's some good good pocket change. $800 a day? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Julian's sixth wife... Sixth wife, Mm. 34-year-old former stewardess and aspiring writer Mary Dean Harvey was also brought on board and served as a cook. So he's 44 years old. He's on his sixth wife. The skipper dude. Yeah, well, maybe she was a writer because she was just trying to write all the names of the girls before. (laughs) He's like, he's lying. It's not six. It's like absurd. She's like, I got to be a writer. I got to track all these. (laughs) It's 60. Why would you hear? (laughs) Now, Julian Harvey was just the skipper. Bluebell was actually owned by a man named Harold Pegg. And this Harold Pegg guy hired Harvey to take tourists on their, like, desired cruises in exchange for $300 a month and full accommodation, free accommodation on the catch. It's a sweet gig. It is a sweet gig. Yeah. On... The afternoon of Wednesday, November 8th, the Duperall family returns to the marina to board the Bluebell and start their long-awaited journey. Over the next few days, the fam- family traveled to locations such as Bimini and Sandy Point, where the Duperalts purchased souvenirs and engaged in activities like snorkeling, spearfishing, and collecting shells on the white and pink sand beaches. Mm. That sounds so heavenly. It's lovely. Yeah, you're just sailing around, going it's, island to island. It's in- in that movie on the flower drum <laughs> you don't even know i don't even know <laughs> i don't even have any grounds to say that i should i should not say that how dare i 
cinephiles are going to come out and fucking knives at me. I'm like, Jim, don't you know Flower Drum Song was the most viewed movie of 1961? It's quintessential 1961 cinematography. And you are bad-mouthing it? Ginger-haired little fucker. Yeah. <laughs> Shut your mouth. Shut your face, ginger fucker. <laughs> <laughs> Early on the... Okay, we're going to get back into this now. Early mm-hmm. on the morning of November 12th, four days into their voyage... Arthur and the Harveys stopped by the office of Sandy Point Village Commissioner Roderick Pinder to fill out forms for leaving the Bahamas and returning to the United States, where Arthur told Pinder, quote, this has been a wife, a wife, this has been a wife. <laughs> this is my seventh wife. <laughs> it's been a sale of a wife time. Okay, okay, okay. Great. It was the quote threw me off. I sounded so professional that I got caught up in it. Mm, mm. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Arthur told Pinder, quote, this has been a once-in-a-lifetime vacation. We'll be back before Christmas. End quote. Mm. So he was ha- they were having a great time. Mm-hmm. This week, this one-week trial run was going great. They loved it. They... You have to burp. <laughs> I had mine under the radar, turned away from the microphone, and, and then you, a second later, was like, I have to burp. So I was afraid it would be barfy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they're having a great time. Mm. They're like out here for a week. He's telling this guy he's never met before. He just needs some papers to get back to the States. And he's like, yo, this trip's been great. Once in a lifetime. 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Would recommend. Mm-hmm. So they're having a great time. Mm-hmm. That evening, everyone on the Bluebell gathered together and ate a meal of chicken cacciatore and salad. Mm-hmm. Shortly after dinner, Terry Joe heads below deck to her sleeping quarters in a small cabin at the back of the boat, as her family and the Harveys remained on deck. Ordinarily, Renee slept in this cabin too, but on this night she remained with her parents and brother on deck. And remember, Renee is Terry Joe's little sister. Right. At approximately 12.35 p.m. on Monday, November 13th, so this is the next day, a crew member aboard an oil tanker named Gulf Lion observed a man frantically waving his arms from a dinghy drifting in the tanker's direction and shouting, Help! I have a dead baby on board! Oh, no. I know. Wow. You're just out here in your oil tanker and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. There's this crazy man with a dead baby? What? Yeah. Pulling the man aboard, crew members observed the deceased body of a girl wearing a life jacket inside the dinghy. The man identified him, himself as Julian Harvey, the skipper of the Bluebell. Harvey proceeded to explain that at approximately 8.30 the previous evening, his small vessel was at a, loco- a location between the Abaco Islands and the Stirrup Key, and they had hit a sudden strong squall. Mm-hmm. So these are islands that are like in the Bahamas. Yeah. And he's a small vessel. Like, does a 60-foot catch a small vessel? I guess compared to yeah. other ones. Yeah. I mean, ship-wise, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you're rolling up on an oil yeah. rigger, like, yeah. Harvey insisted Arthur kept steering in the direction of the squall, which is, like, doesn't make any sense because Arthur was a experienced sailor and he was a Navy veteran. Mm-hmm. He sees a squall and he's just going to fucking drift right into it. intentionally sail inside of a squall. Mm. Okay, Harvey. According to Julian, he was completely separated from all others on board because 
Arthur kept trying to sail inside of the squall, which caused the Bluebell's main mast to snap and pierce the ship's hull. So somehow in this huge destruction, he was separated from everybody. He was separated because the main mast pulled down the mizzen sail. Mm -hmm. Right. So the mizzen sail. The mizzen sail. For anyone who's missing it. <laughs> is on the it, a mizzen can only be on a ship that has three or more masts. So since this is a twin masted catch, mm -hmm. which it has, again is is four it's masts. Four. Yeah. So the mizzen refers to the last mast on a ship, mm -hmm. the sail. So mm -hmm. it's just the sail of the last mast, and it's mm -hmm. called the mizzen. He had attempted to retrieve wire cutters from the cabin to clear the deck space and cut through the, the fallen rigging, but a sudden fire mm. had broken out on board, Ooh. and he'd not been able to rescue his wife or any of the passengers. He was so busy looking for those wire cutters to get through the rigging. So he was forced to abandon, abandon the catch, obviously. And he was alone on this dinghy, and then he looks down in the water, and he sees the body of one of his young passengers float by, who he thought was Terry Joe. Mm. So he retrieved the body from the water and attempted to revive the child. And he was unsuccessful in his medical efforts, but he says he kept the body alongside him in the raft out of respect because he was the only one that got on a dinghy and he hadn't seen any of the other yeah, passengers. That, that makes sense to me. I mean, yeah. fire on board priority was the wire cutters, maybe not, but, you know. <laughs> you see this poor kid drifting in the water. You yeah, better try and help her. Yeah, at least pick her up, you know. Jesus. But nearly everyone who heard Julian's story found something wrong with it. Mm. Crew members on the Gulf Lion, that oil rig that rescued him, found him far too calm and collected for someone who just lost his wife mm. and all of the passengers on his ship. And if this extraordinary tale is true, then he was far too calm for someone who just escaped with his life. Yeah. And the Bluebell's owner, so that Harold Pegg guy, heard about what happened and he found the story insane and ridiculous mm -hmm. because the catch had just been inspected and cleared. So he was like, I don't understand how a whole mast just collapses. Yeah. Even uh, Julian's old friend from his military days heard this story. Mm. His old friend named uh, James Boozer. Oh, it's great. It's a great name. It's a great name. He like set up for a legacy of boozing it, so you you better hold up. Yeah, that's that's the kind of name that your parents give you, and they're hoping you turn out to be the guy in Cheers. Oh and yeah. You walk in, and they all go Norm. Is that what his is name? Norm. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna say that's the kind of kid that when he's born, you just put a forty in his hand, and you're like, on your way, son. Strap for life. There you go. <laughs> So he he's uh, Julian Harvey's friend, and he obviously had heard this story. Not only one story, he heard varying iterations of Harvey's story. And mm -hmm. he was like, okay, dude, something's missing here. Mm -hmm. There's also the fact that no one at the lighthouse on the nearby island saw a fire at sea that night. Mm -hmm. And Julian, who is claiming that he couldn't revive this girl one of his passengers he didn't make any sort of effort to get to that island with a lighthouse which is a beacon he didn't try and get there to see if anyone could help yeah he was just drifting until the next afternoon 
So Julian was taken to Nassau. Nassau, I think is how you say it. It's the capital of the Bahamas. Okay. And questioned by authorities where his calm demeanor and the fact that his dinghy had an emergency kit in it, kit in it, caused them to initially express serious doubts in his claim. And Julian admitted at that point that, yeah, okay, fine. While I was in my dinghy, I did have the emergency kit, and I never once looked in it, even though I know all emergency kits have flares. So he could have been signaling for somebody to come and help him and the girl. But he admits that he never did that. Oops. (laughs) But Julian's story could not be disproven. Mm. He was the only survivor after all and he was allowed to return to miami on november 15th so that's two days after he was pulled from the water to face further questioning by the u.s coast guard Mm. november 16th julian reiterated his story to the u.s coast guard investigators stating that a sudden squall had brought down the bluebell's mast piercing the ship's hull rupturing the auxiliary gas tank and starting a fire And that all of these circumstances made it impossible for him to rescue his wife or any member of the Duperald family. Mm -hmm. But this time he added that he was using two fire extinguishers on the flames with little effort. Just a hero, double fist in fire extinguishers, trying his damnedest. Yeah, they're not heavy. Even though they're in a squall. So I don't know how a fire would start raging. That just occurred to me. (laughs) Below deck. It was below deck. Oh, that's right. It could have been. And uh, he, once he got in his dinghy to try and get away from this sinking ship, he said that he hung around a bit and, you know, shouted over and over again into the squall, trying to locate the other passengers. He was trying. Mm-hmm. Man. He was trying. If, if only he had some sort of way of signaling to people in the night, <laughs> you know? A flares, maybe. They don't maybe. have those on boats. They don't have those on You've seen Titanic? Kits. They don't have those things at all. So he reiterated that he, this at this point, after he was yelling and yelling into the squall, trying to locate the others, that he saw Terry Joe's, who he thought was Terry Joe, float by and took her out of the water and made sure investigators know that he tried and failed to revive her. Mm-hmm. But he tried his damnedest. Oh, yeah. He did everything. He did right? everything. Uh, CPR, I, I think, right? Probably. I'm guessing. I would think that's a reviving effort. Well, Julian's being questioned by the U.S. Coast Guard, a Greek freighter named Captain Theo. So that's the the ship, Mm -hmm. Captain Theo. That's not the captain of the Captain Theo. It's sailing in the Northwest Providence Channel. Okay, so it's a Greek freighter, so there's a few Greek names here, and I'm going to try my best. So, I mean, I actually have, like, Greek friends, so they're going to hear this and be like, what the fuck? Mm. (laughs) Can't say any of these names. Let me up with you. (laughs) Second officer, Nicholas Spacadakis. How many S's is that in that? Spacadakis? <laughs> no, Spacadakis. Spacadakis. Yeah. Observed something in the water approximately one mile away. Spacadakis summons Captain Stilianos Kutstodontis mm-hmm. to the bridge. And they, the two of them gradually realize Spacadakis's sighting was not a fishing vessel. A small white raft carrying a young blonde-haired child dressed in a white blouse and pink pants, leaning forwards and waving feebly. Mm-hmm. The captain ordered the engines to be stopped and a life raft lowered. 
they saw sharks in the water and they were like circling the girl's uh, cork float. So I heard cork float and I instantly thought of like a cork, like a yep. wine bottle cork. Yep. But it's like this, it's, it's a piece of shit. It's like an oval raft and the edges are like maybe like plastic or maybe they're inflatable. It's hard to tell. Maybe there's cork in it. Uh, probably. Yeah. Like a cork filled plastic lining. And then the middle of it, it doesn't have like a solid base or anything. It's literally like mesh netting. Oh, I, I gotcha. So it, yeah. yeah. So there's like no base to sit in. You're just sitting in the water because it's just mesh. And then this shitty like cork ring around it. So they saw her sitting on that while there's sharks floating around. So the crew members shouted at the kid, like, don't jump in the water. Mm-hmm. And one of the crew members, Evangelos Cancillus, lifted the child aboard the life raft, hoisted her aboard the Captain Theo, and placed her in a spare cabin. Aboard the freighter, the crew quickly discovered the child was incoherent, barely able to speak. She was given water and orange juice. Salt was sponged from her body with wet towels and Vaseline was applied to her lips. She was able to hoarsely identify herself as 11-year-old Terry Jo Dubralt, mm-hmm. informing the crew that she had been floating aboard the, coke, the, the cork float for several days after the ship she was on sank. Her ability to speak waned, and the child soon responded to questions by weakly gesturing before lapsing into a semi-comatose state. Mm. Uh, the captain of the Captain Theo immediately informed the Coast Guard of their discovery and the child's medical predicament, which obviously wasn't good. And a rescue helicopter was summoned. Terry Joe was suffering from severe sunburn, dehydration, and exposure, and she was airlifted to a Miami hospital in critical condition. Mm-hmm. She began to recuperate, but it would be two days before she was well enough to reveal to police and the U.S. Coast Guard the circumstances surrounding her rescue and the truth of what happened to her family and Mary Dean Harvey. Mm. So remember, while all of this is happening with Terry Joe. Julian was being interrogated for the first time by the U.S. Coast Guard. And during this first interrogation, the Coast Guard were unable to prove that Julian was lying, so they let him go. Mm-hmm. But upon letting him go, they were like, okay, but you have to come back tomorrow. So the next day is November 17th. You got to come back, and we need to interview you a bit more. Mm-hmm. So he returns, and halfway through the second interrogation, he was told that Terry Joe had been rescued the previous day mm. and that her condition was improving. And his response was to go, oh, my God, before going, isn't that wonderful? Oh. Like, really calm. Oh, yeah. When, like, any other like person switch. any other person would be like, are you kidding? Like, is she okay? How is she? Is she fine? Can I see her? Like... Anyone else would be, like, so amazed. Yeah. And especially, I mean, I'm fine. He might have been a little bit confused because he thought he, the body he took out of the water was her. Yeah. He was informed by a lieutenant named Ernest Murdoch. No. That's a great name, right? 
Yeah. And he was informed by Ernest Murdoch that an official investigation into the loss of the Bluebell and her passengers was to be launched that day. Shortly after hearing that an investigation was going, uh, Julian asked to be excused from further interrogation, claiming he was tired and he wished to speak with his wife's family. The Coast Guard granted his request and let him go. Oh, Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. Oh, come on. In the 61, you guys kind of, like, the police had a little more uh, leeway <laughs> on their interrogation methods, I'm guessing. You'd think. So uh, you'd think the Coast Guard would have been like, no, uh, no. You would, I you, mean, you, sit you right would here. want to because you'd be like, okay, well, this seems, the story seems weird. Plus, we just heard this is Terry Joe that was rescued. And before he said he pulled Terry Joe from the water. So maybe he's just confused. But the, obviously, the investigation starting. They're going to have to get Terry's statement, Terry Joe's statement, cooperate it with Julian's. Mm-hmm. So they can't really prove anything right now because Terry Joe hasn't even been able to say anything. So yeah. it's kind of like the same situation from the day before where they were like, okay, well, we can't disprove anything you're saying. So, yeah, we have to let you go because yeah. we, we're not charging you with anything. We don't like any version of the story you gave us. You don't have to like but it, but you can't the books, hold them. By the books, nothing was... Nothing was technically wrong yet. Exactly. Okay, I got you. I got you. <clears throat> so, get ready for this. Upon leaving the interrogation, Julian drives a short distance where he checks into the Sandman Motel under the assumed name of John Monroe. He penned a two-page suicide note before... Slashing his thigh, ankles, and jugular vein with a razor blade in the motel bathroom, ultimately dying of suicide. His body was found by a maid approximately two hours later. Oh, the poor maid. The poor maid. And I mean, what a bad razor blade and all of those. Why several? Why? Because you gotta make sure. Ankles in there? Thigh, ankles, and jugular vein. Oh. And I mean, it's rough. Talking about suicide is always rough, but nothing really says I'm guilty. Like, I'm going to check into a motel under an assumed name and bye. Yeah, yeah, I would I would say that's, that's a pretty good tell. And then, yeah, like, this poor mate, she's probably already like, I fucking ate my job. I gotta go clean these toilets. What the fuck? I didn't <laughs> ask for this. <laughs> I'm not cleaning that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not cleaning that. <laughs> I, I would just be like, Oh, shit. Close the door. Okay. Mm. We'll let second shift handle that. Yeah. Oh, is that a squall coming in? I better leave. <laughs> I gotta go. All right. So by, by November 20th, three days after Julian's death, Terry Joe had regained sufficient strength to reveal to investigators the truth regarding the loss of her family, Mary Dean Harvey, and the Bluebell. So this is Terry Joe's story. What really happened. Late on November 12th, the Bluebell began its return journey to Fort Lauderdale. At around 9 p.m., Terry Jo had entered the lower cabin to sleep, leaving her parents, siblings, and the Harveys on deck. At approximately 11 p.m., she was awakened by heavy footfalls and the sounds of her brother screaming for his father. She lay in bed, shivering, disoriented, and terrified. Approximately five minutes pass, and Terry Jo creeps out of the cabin 
and she sees her mother and her brother lying crumpled in a pool of blood in the main cabin, and she knew instantly that they were dead. Mm -hmm. Slowly, Terry Jo climbs the stairs leading to the deck and sticks her head out of the hatch. She sees more blood pooled on the starboard side of the cockpit and possibly a knife. Do you know what the starboard side is? So if you're looking at the front of the ship, starboard means right. Gotcha. She climbs on deck and turns toward the front of the boat when suddenly she's struck in the head with a bucket by Harvey, who shoves her below deck shouting, Get back down there! Mm. What a dick. Yeah. I mean, obviously, but... Yeah. Hit you in the head with a bucket? Yeah, it's just, it's just the cherry on top. So she's terrified. She... Ew. She's terrified. Terry Jo averts her eyes from her mother and brother's bodies and returns to her quarters. Mm -hmm. Approximately 15 minutes later, she sees oil and water beginning to gush onto the floor of her cabin, but she's, like, way too scared to move. Then she notices Julian's silhouette in the doorway. Oh, no. Holding what Terry Jo is almost certain is her brother's rifle. To make eye contact, the only sound is that of rising water and Julian's heavy breathing. Oh. She's laying there like, oh my God, this is it. I'm either going to drown or this insane person is going to shoot me. Mm-hmm. And he's just staring at me, breathing heavy. Mm-hmm. Nope. Suddenly, Julian just walks out of the cabin and returns above deck. All right. So he's just being a little freak. Terry, Terry Joe lays there. She's scared to death. And the water is rising. And it's it's rising like hot, like high and quickly. Yeah. And it starts lapping over the top of her mattress. So she knows that she has to abandon her cabin. So she jumps into the water. It's waist deep by now. And she heads for the stairs. Mm-hmm. She reaches the top. And she sees Julian standing on the deck with the vessel's dinghy floating on the port side. And she asks him, like, is this ship sinking? And he just yells at her that, yeah, it's sinking. And he has the rope that's attached to this dinghy. Mm -hmm. And he just pushes it into her hands. And he's just like, hold this. I have to get something. And then he just walks away. So she's like, what the fuck? And she's just in shock and scared. And she accidentally lets go of the rope. Okay. So... Julian comes back and he sees that she's let the dinghy go. So he just dives into the water and swims after it because he doesn't want it to abandon him. Mm-hmm. So he goes after the dinghy and instead abandons Terry Joe on this sinking ship. And she just watches him swim off and disappear into the night. And like, kudos to this girl because she has seen horrible things. Mm-hmm. She saw her mother's body, her brother's body. She has no idea where her father is. She has no idea where Mary Dean is. This asshole has come into her room, stared at her, held a rifle, smashed her in the head with a bucket, and now has just left her on a sinking boat. Glad she dropped that damn rope. Me too. Yeah. And, like, we'll talk about something later, but yeah, it's like, it's really good that she dropped it. Um, So, all of this has happened. She's 11. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. Yeah. And yet, she still has, like, her wits about her as she remembers... A small cork float lashed to the deck. Mm. So she goes to this float. She unties it. And the boat is like 
sinking now. Like it is going down into the ocean. So she gets the float free. She puts it in the water and she's like half crawling and half swimming and pushing the float like away from the wreck into the open water. Mm-hmm. And as she's climbing onto the float, one of the lines of it snag on the sinking ship, because like I told you, it doesn't have a solid bottom. It's just like mesh netting. Yeah. And so it's snagged on there. It's sinking with it. And like, thank God it comes free. Like somehow it like breaks free. So they like resurface together. So she like pops up. She's still on her float. She's safe. And she just huddles like inside of it as low as she can mm-hmm. because she's terrified that Julian is like lurking somewhere and is going to be pissed if he sees that she's survived. So she's out there alone, hiding in her shitty little cork float. Yep. It's pit- It's like pitch black. Yep. The moon has already set. There's no light from the stars because it's really cloudy. Mm-hmm. And then... The salt water is stinging her eyes and her lips. She's already soaking wet and freezing. She's only wearing a little white blouse and pink pants. Mm -hmm. And then it starts to shower, like piss down rain. So she's like shivering uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. And in an interview she did, she said like at that time, all she was thinking about was like, where's my dad? So like she probably is just, she is definitely terrified. She knows the fate of her uh, mother and brother. Yep. She had to see them, but mm-hmm. she hasn't seen her father at all. So, and it's like that you're 11. That's your dad. Mm-hmm. Like you think like if anyone can help me, if anyone can save me, it's my dad. Where is he? Yeah. So for like the whole night that she said, that's all she was thinking. Like, when's my dad going to come for me? So Monday morning arrived. I mean, technically all of this was happening at Monday morning, but it was like the really early hours, like the middle of the night, Monday morning. Mm -hmm. But the morning arrives with like the sun coming down. And like initially she loves it because she's been freezing all night. So Mm -hmm. the sun feels really good because she's like chilled to the bone. Mm -hmm. So she's like warming up now and it feels really nice until she realizes like, okay, so the sun is only going to keep rising. So it became unbearably hot and she began to just burn. Like she was burnt on every inch of her body. Yeah. And then on top of that, her tongue and her throat are getting drier and drier and feel swollen because she's thirsty and dehydrating and it's salt water. This is her whole Monday, just suffering in the sun and being thirsty. And then on Tuesday. It's a rough Monday. Mondays are always rough. And then there's floating on a cork float in salt water under an oppressive sun type of Monday. With your family who's been... Your family's gone. Murdered by some complete asshole. So Tuesday comes around and she notices this small red plane circling above her. Mm -hmm. And she sees it and she gets pumped. So she uses her blouse, like her white shirt, and she's like waving it like a flag, mm-hmm. trying to get their attention. Mm-hmm. And she's just, her heart is like pounding. She's excited. She has hope. This plane is going to see me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm about to be rescued. Nope. Doesn't see him. Doesn't see her. Yeah. She said that it passed right over her. Yeah. And it was like close enough that she could see the base of the plane, like all the details of it. Mm-hmm. 
but she could never see the pilot. So she knew that at the angle it was flying above her, if she couldn't see the pilot, they couldn't see her. Yeah. And so it just went. And she was devastated, obviously. It's going to be soul crushing. It, it would be. You yeah. think that's your someone coming to save you. Mm-hmm. So then later that same day, she's just chilling. I mean, what else is she supposed to do? She looks out into the water. She sees these shapes underneath the surface, like starting to come near her. Mm-hmm. And at first she's terrified. And then this little head comes up. And it's a porpoise. Oh. Yeah. It's not a shark. No. No. It was a porpoise. And it just, these porpoises just come up and they're, they're like coming up for air and they just have these huge dark eyes and they just stare at her. And they. A little, a little creepy. It is. <laughs> a little creepy. It is, but they were harmless and mm-hmm. they come up for air. Yeah. And they, she said that they stayed all around her all day until the sunset. Oh. And she said it was really comforting, and she loved it. Oh. I thought that was really cute. Yeah. And I also, not going to lie, I had to Google what a porpoise was. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I yeah. didn't know. Okay, hit us, hit us what, with, with what a porpoise is. It's like... Is it like a dolphin? Yeah. But, but a little weird looking? Yeah. Yeah. It's like... A lumpy dolphin? It's like, eyes? A, it's like a shmushed dolphin. All right, Like yeah. Like a, a dolphin looks like a stretched out porpoise. The porpoise is like compact. Yeah. There's like, you know, there's like Dr. Evil and then there's like Mini-Me. It's like so, that. So you got dolphins and porpoises. <laughs> you, got, you got Mini-Me and Dr. Evil. Yeah. All right. Mini-Me is a porpoise. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a, 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 the only way I can describe it for some reason. <laughs> okay. Back to this. Mm-hmm. So the porpoises leave. The porpoise. The porpoise. They leave her for the day, the sun setting, and they got shit to do, you know, porpoise mm-hmm. parties. So it's dark again. And whereas that first night it was dark and scary, she was wet and it was freezing. This night, she's like, thank God, because she's out of the sun. Mm-hmm. And her body was like burnt. So it was like such a relief to just be in darkness and yeah. not have a scorching sun above you. And then she said, um, I think she wrote about this in a book that she wrote. She dreamed that she was in a cockpit of an airliner. And this airliner was coming in for a landing. And she could see this like long, straight uh, runway with all these iridescent lights. And it was just leading into this like black abyss. Mm-hmm. And in the dream, she sees her father. And he's seated peacefully with a glass of red wine. Mm. And she heard his voice call out to her, come on, Terry Joe, we're leaving. Mm. And I just, like, when I was reading that, like, my eyes watered. Yeah. I was like, oh. Yeah. Because the whole first night, you're just like, where's my dad? I want my dad. Where is he? What is he doing? Come save me. Mm-hmm. And then she has this dream, and he says, come on, Terry Joe, we're leaving. Yeah. And she sees this black abyss. Yeah, that, that part's a little... It's so dark and scary. Yeah. She was just probably dreaming about like getting ready to die and go and be with her family. Yeah. And missing her dad. And missing her dad, of course. Yeah. And then Wednesday comes around. It's bright and clear, which isn't good. No, that's not good. It means it's very hot very quickly. Yep. And at this point, her eyes are like 
they hurt because Mm -hmm. they're just full of salt. Mm -hmm. So it's so bright and the water has like the glare of the sun on it. So she said her eyes just were in severe pain. They were burning because they were already hard to open. And then you have the glare of the sun just like shooting in your retinas. Yeah. All her muscles ached. Her skin burned all over her body, even under her clothes. Mm -hmm. Her lips were rough and swollen, and she can't get comfortable because she has to balance on that shitty float. It's starting to disintegrate. The cork is falling off. The webbing is ripping. It didn't even last. It didn't even last, what, how many days is it now? It's two? This isn't even two days yet. And the little shitty cork thingy that they brought in on to sea can't even survive the two days yep yep so her body is it's stiff and rigid because she's having to painfully balance herself on this so she doesn't just fall into the water mm-hmm. and then add on top of all of this her painful lips her sunburn her rigid body mm-hmm. she's hallucinating now right so and she said she kept imagining this like little tiny desert mm-hmm. and it had like this one solitary palm tree on it and she would get like excited by it. So she would start paddling to it mm-hmm. and then it would disappear and then oh, she no. would see it somewhere else. So she would paddle towards it. So like the quintessential oasis yes. in the middle of the ocean. Yes. And she's already like so weak. She mm-hmm. has no water. She hasn't eaten. She's being beaten up by the sun. Mm-hmm. And then she is like aggressively paddling to get to this island for safety. Mm-hmm. So she is exhausted and she just falls unconscious. And, like, this point, it would have been, like, later into Wednesday, so, like, probably the evening. Right. And she falls unconscious, and she is out. Like, Thursday morning comes. She didn't even feel the sun, which usually wakes her up because of how hot it is. Yeah. She didn't even feel it. She was just in this deep sleep. She said she was close to death. She was depressed knowing the chances of her being spotted by someone in a passing ship or plane were very slim Mm -hmm. and she said she thinks that because she was in a white blouse and she was on a white float and she has blonde hair that she was blending into the waves of the sea because they you get those like white cap waves so she thinks that she was just blending in Mm. and she's thinking about this for like the whole morning of Thursday. Mm-hmm. And then she said that she just kind of got this feeling of like, pull yourself together. Like just, just get up, sit up, keep looking out because help could be there. Yeah. So she gathers, gathers her strength. She opens her eyes. And that's when she saw the captain Theo looming above her coming to her rescue. Oh, great time. Right. She was about to just go to sleep and let everything come to her. Yeah. But she was like, get your shit together, girl. Yeah. And she sits up, and then there's the Captain Theo. Yeah. And that's when she started to, like, wave the best she could. She showed up just in time. Yeah. Yeah. And Captain of the Captain Theo must be thrilled. Captain of the proud. Captain Theo. You got Spackadakis. Spackadakis. Second Captain. Spackadakis. Yeah. Spackadakis. I'm so sorry about the Greek names. I'm sure I butchered them. So she gave all of this, this tale, telling the truth... Yep. The real story about what happened. And she also says, like, she's adamant that the mast of the bluebell was intact. Mm-hmm. 
There was no fire aboard the vessel, and the sea was calm throughout the entirety of the events prior to the sinking. No mm. squall, no fire, no fallen mast, no damaged hull. Mm. After telling her story, she was informed that Julian had been picked up alive three days prior to herself in a life raft alongside her sister's body, and that the bodies of her parents, brother, and Mary Dean had all been lost at sea. Mm. So at least she knew her sister was found and would be able to put to rest properly. Mm-hmm. But she, her parents and her brother and, and Mary Dean are just mm-hmm. gone. Yeah. So with Terry Joe's story outlining clear evidence of foul play mm-hmm. and Julian Harvey's sudden death, an investigation was launched into Julian's history. And it's like, it's just so sad because if only... These passengers, the Duperalt family, and even Mary Dean, knew that Julian was such a troubled man. I don't think they ever would have went on board with him. No. He had fallen into serious financial troubles. He was being sought after by creditors. He was essentially using this voyage as an opportunity to execute like a despicable scheme. So, like I mentioned before, only one month prior to the Duperalt family chartering the Bluebell and using Julian as the skipper, mm-hmm. that Harold Pegg guy, who was the owner of the Bluebell, had taken, like, given Julian this chance to take tourists out on a cruise, and he would give them some money and accommodation. Yeah. And that was one month before he took the Duperalts out. Julian had arranged a double indemnity insurance policy on his wife two months after their marriage in July 1961. Mm. Which is insane because that means they were only married for four months. And also, do you know what a double indemnity insurance policy is? No, I don't. So a payout of double the amount of an insurance policy under certain conditions so a condition of like the person with this policy dies by accident okay so if you have a life insurance policy of a hundred thousand dollars and i put a double indemnity clause on that Mm -hmm. if you die by accident i'll get two hundred thousand instead of one hundred thousand so he gets hired to take people out on a yacht or a catch sorry Meanwhile, he has a double indemnity insurance policy on his wife. So, investigators speculate this arrangement he had on top of the double indemnity insurance policy, it helped to formulate this plan where Julian was going to kill his wife at sea, claim that she had vanished into the waters, and use the tourists as valuable witnesses to corroborate his claim and then collect on her 20000 double indemnity insurance policy, mm-hmm. which in this case would yield double that sum if she died accidentally. Mm-hmm. So what do you think $20,000 is in today's money? Oh, man. 80000 Nope. $174,815. So, I mean, Damn. yeah, that's a lot of money, especially if you don't have any. Mm-hmm. But 
to formulate this plan to take your essentially new bride out mm-hmm. on like what seems like a gig that's too good to be true. Yeah. And murder her for like not even 200 grand. Well, you yeah. would get the double indemnity. So it would be like not even 350. Like that's insanity. That's not, I mean, you should never kill somebody. Yeah. But I mean, it's not like he's killing her and he's going to get like some estate and like millions of dollars. Yeah. He's not even going to get 350. It's insanity. I was bad at math on top of everything. Yeah. Consistently earn this amount of money or get one mediocre payout payout for murdering people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it goes wrong. And speaking of going wrong, that's what the investigators think, is that Julian may have been observed by Arthur or another member of the Duperalt family, um, either in the act of murdering his wife or in the act of trying to dispose of her body. So he had these witnesses and investigators think he then killed Arthur, Jean, and Brian and Renee because they were witnesses. They saw it. And they were all above deck still, whereas Terry Joe had retired to her quarters. It's also speculated that while he was in his dumb dinghy floating away to safety. Uh, he saw Renee's body and he retrieved it, not because he's a good guy who wanted to try and revive a child. Mm. He wanted to add credibility to his story. Like, look, I really did try. And I saw her and I tried to save her and revive her and I brought her back to shore, but I couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, what a hero. Right. That's what he wanted. So if Julian had not died by suicide, uh, he would have been prosecuted for the murder of his wife, Mary Dean Harvey, mm-hmm. Arthur, Jean, Brian, and Renee Duperalt. And he would have been prosecuted for the attempted murder of Terry Joe Duperalt. Mm-hmm. So you know how he had left that suicide note to James Boozer? Yeah. Yeah. Well, inside that note, he left no explanations or apologies for his actions. He completely stuck to his story about him being a hero trying to save people and it didn't work. And all he said was essentially like, I got too tired and nervous and I couldn't stand it any longer. So he mm. killed himself. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. Yeah, like that. No it's accountability. Gonna... Yeah, no. Um, so after like the investigators had like looking into his past, learned about this double indemnity insurance policy, seen what type of guy he is, they are like, I bet if we just dig a bit further, we'll see other like sketchy things. Mm-hmm. So they do. Yeah, he was a Mets fan. (laughs) They searched further into his background, and they discovered a series of insurance claims. Oh, good. I got three here. So. A trilogy. A trilogy. Oh, yeah. Of insurance claims. Mm. First of all, he previously survived a 1949 car accident that killed the second of his previous five wives. Oh. <laughs> and her mother. When their 1946 Plymouth he had been driving plunged off a bridge at high speed into a bayou on a rainy night. Mm-hmm. He somehow was miraculously able to free himself and swim to safety. But he left his wife and her mother to drown. This guy is subtle. This he, guy is real subtle. He's real clever with his with his his range. He doesn't even try. No. He's like, okay, 
oh no, I've crashed my car into the water. I must swim to safety. And he leaves his wife, Joanne, and her mother, Myrtle Bolin, to drown. Probably. (laughs) They probably hated him before this happened, too. Oh, probably. And this was 1949, right? So it's not like there's some sort of like wicked crime scene investigators who are going to come out like Mm -hmm. section off the area, (laughs) investigate. It's 49. They're like, oh. It's in the. It's in the damn water, right? Yeah. Like, what are they gonna do? They're right? like, like, oh, you, you try, you, you tried. Oh, sorry about it. Second insurance claim. Mm-hmm. One of his y'alls. His, yeehaw! What y'alls? Y a w l s. Y'alls. Okay. It's the same as a catch, except. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> except, the mizzen mast, is behind the rudder stock, whereas on a catch. The mizzen mast is in front of the rudder stock. You guys, uh, thank you for coming on our nautical podcast. <laughs> I know. I couldn't talk about all of these things. We're gonna and go not into gun whales next. Saying. You know, we're gonna we're gonna hit that whole <laughs> that whole what's a port storyline soon too. Well, do you want to know what a rudder stock is? <laughs> what anything? Yeah. Rudder stock is the shaft where the turning force of the steering gear is transmitted to the rudder blade. I'm not touching this one. The rudder stock is the shaft where the turning force of the steering gear is transmitted to the rudder blade. I just need you to know. It's the shaft. I got it. All right. Oh, guess what the name of his y'all was? I, if it's not Yeehaw, <laughs> it's not Yeehaw. It's, is it, this isn't another insurance law <laughs> <plot> scheme? <laughs> Double indemnity, am I right? <laughs> It's, it's called, it, I can't believe I keep getting away with this. No, he can. He totally can. And yeah. then you go like, like that. It's called the Torbatross. The Torbatross. The Torbatross. Well, anyway, that is thing. There, is there anything to that name or is it just? No. You just thought it was cool? I mean, we'll you know, look you know how I feel about Googling nautical terms like, Rudder stock is the shaft where the turning force. It gets worse, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't actually Google the Torbatross because I think it was made up. But I just thought it kind of sounded metal if you tried. Torbatross. Welcome aboard the Torbatross. (laughs) Okay, so he had actually previously sunk. Well, he did. Okay, sorry. He he didn't. Allegedly. Allegedly, yes. Allegedly. He sunk it. But if if this. If this dead man <laughs> hears this podcast and decides to sue us, um, you're a piece of shit. I know. And it would be worth it <laughs> to take you back to court. <laughs> Pay for all your crimes. Yep. So this y'all of his had sunk after running into the submerged wreckage of the warship San Marcos, which had sunk in 1911 in a shallow water within Chesapeake Bay. So, crew members had repeatedly warned him to steer his y'all clear of the wreckage. Mm -hmm. But he would repeatedly say that he has to go near the the submerged vessel because he's attempting to read an inscription upon a buoy marking the site. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. No. So, shallow water, there's a, a sunken warship. Yeah. Sticking out. Yeah, the buoy's there to tell you don't come here. Yep. 
It's and, a restricted area. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, I just really got to know what that buoy says. He said about the bluebell sinking, mm-hmm. Arthur kept steering the ship into a squall, even though he kept telling him, don't do that. It's a bad idea. Oh, okay. Isn't I that gotcha. a weird parallel? Yeah, Meanwhile, parallel. his whole crew is like, can you please not steer the Torpedros into this wreckage? Okay. It's prohibited. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Next insurance claim. Mm-hmm. His powerboat, the Valiant, had also sunk under suspicious circumstances off the coast of Cuba in 1958. And guess what? For all of these losses and tragedies, he got large insurance settlements. And mm. he financi- he financially benefited, like, largely from these payouts. Yeah. I found this quote from a Mental Floss article that shows people in Julian's life have always been wary of him. Mm-hmm. So here's the quote. Anyone with a bird's eye view of Julian Harvey's life would have found a few other elements not in his favor. While it was true that Harvey was a skilled World War II bomber pilot, served in the Korean War, and even managed to pull off a dangerous test flight of a modified B-24 bomber, peers in the military periodically noted his propensity for ditching missions due to quote-unquote engine failure. By the end of his career in the military, Even his supporters noted his nerves were shot, a fact apparently made clear by the worsening of a facial tick and stutter. So based on the evidence the investigators uncovered, the quotes from people in his life, his suicide note, his vile actions on the night of November 12th, it's pretty clear that this guy didn't possess any follow through. He didn't want to work hard and earn anything fairly. He wanted quick, easy money. And he didn't care who he let down or hurt in the process. Mm-hmm. This guy is an absolute demon. Mm-hmm. Enough about Julian Harvey. All right. What what happened to Terry Joe? Yeah, what happened to Terry Joe? You gotta know. Yeah. Following the loss of her family. Terry Jo returned to Wisconsin to live with her aunt, her grandmother, and three cousins in the city of De Pere. And these members were on her father's side. She refused to part with the blouse and pants she was wearing when she was rescued. Mm-hmm. I just put that in there because I thought it was really sweet. Yeah. Um, the following year, she changed her first name to... I think it's pronounced Teary. It's T-E-R-E. All right, I'll I'll go with that. Teary, and and she claims she did this in part due to her refusal to be viewed as a victim, especially because like this was a year later that she changed her name, but in mm-hmm. this whole year, she would have been like seeing nonstop like reporting news articles. Yeah, and she she changed her name to something that's so similar, but would be harder to find, you know, in a phone mm-hmm. book or an archive or something. That's true. Yeah, and this part is like not surprising, but still surprising like it's not surprising but it's always shocking to hear due to contemporary psychological coping strategies in the early 1960s authority figures very seldom spoke with terry joe about her ordeal 
and she received no trauma counseling. She was never talked to about it. She was essentially just put in a hospital, made sure she recovered. We need your story. Goodbye. Yeah, good luck. And because of this, and she's 11. Like She was 11 when all this happened. Kids are, they're like, they're like rubber. They just bounce right back, right? <laughs> like mentally, you can't really hurt them. That's right. Yeah. 1960s says they bounce back. Yeah, you just give them some rum and... <laughs> Christ. Talk to James Boozer. He knows all about it. <clears throat> oh, yeah. So consequently, she didn't uh, talk or speak to anybody publicly about any of this. Of course not. Um, even talking about her family or her survival ordeal. And it took her like over 20 years mm -hmm. before she like publicly came out and talked about it to anybody. Mm -hmm. And I didn't put this in my notes. I believe the f it was like 1988 maybe. And she went on the Oprah Winfrey show. And that was like the first time she publicly talked about it. Oh. Yeah. Tear Joe. Oprah's got the best answer. Oh, I'll give sure. it to her. I'll give it to her. Uh, sure. You can you can badmouth Oprah all you want. You shouldn't, but her interviews are solid. She's, she's got some good interviews. <laughs> okay, so this podcast is brought to you by Oprah Winfrey. This is yeah, sponsor us, <laughs> Oprah. Oprah. So Terry Joe later married and she had three children, <clears throat> which is cute because she was one of three children. <clears throat> As an adult, she chose to live and work close to the ocean. I don't know what she did. She's now retired and resides in Kewanee, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And in 2010, Thierry Joe Dupralt Fassbender released her memoir, Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean, mm. which I didn't have a chance to read, but I really do want to read it. And I think if I read it, I bet I'll get more information about her family, which yeah. I, I like to know about and include. Yeah. So I'm sure she would have talked about them. Yeah, because they're the gems in this one. Yeah. You know, some asshole in a dinghy who decided to take the coward's way out where he could take any accountability for yeah. all of his actions. Exactly. Yeah. You know what? He's probably mostly just upset that he got caught, got caught went through all of this work, and isn't was never going to get paid out. Yeah. Poor him. Yeah, poor him. So this book that Thierry Joe wrote was co-authored with psychologist and survival expert Richard Logan. And her book details her family's final cruise, Harvey's murder of her family and his wife, the three and a half days she spent drifting upon the cork float prior to her rescue mm -hmm. and her life in the year since. Some individuals, including writer Earl Stanley Gardner, have speculated as to why Harvey did not murder Terry Joe that night. So when you said um, it's probably a good thing that she let go of the dinghy when she was still on the boat and yeah. Buddy swam away. Yeah. So Gardner has speculated Harvey may have subconsciously wanted to be caught and punished for his actions, but really no one else mm. thinks that. Mm -mm. Richard Logan, the co-author, yeah. and many others have theorized that Harvey had intended to kill her but when Terry Joe accidentally dropped the rope connected to his dinghy, he was forced to dive overboard to prevent it from floating away without him, yep. resulting in him leaving Terry Joe alive on the sinking ship and believing she wouldn't not survive that. Yeah. Yeah. When Terry Joe was 60 years old, so 49 years after her ordeal, mm -hmm. 
she granted a televised interview with a morning television show host, Matt Laurer, I think is how you say it. L-A-U-E-R. Laurer? Lauer? 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 Matt Lauer? Matt Lauer? I think it's Matt Lauer. All right, that sounds better. Matt Lauer. U.S., so it might be Matt Lauer. Um, so in this interview, she told him she believed Harvey thought she would go down with the ship. She also stated her belief that Harvey had originally intended to discreetly murder his wife, dispose of her body, later claim she was lost at sea. But she thinks that uh, Mary Dean fought back, and that's what attracted the attention of someone in the Duperalt family. Mm-hmm. And then, all, obviously. Because they were all out of their their beds. Yeah, they were all above deck. Yeah. And... Terry Joe has also stated she does not wish for people to reflect upon her ordeal and feel sorry for her, but rather to think to themselves, like, she has gone on with her life. Mm-hmm. Terry Joe has also stated she has, quote, always believed I was saved for a reason. If one person heals from a life tragedy after reading my story, my journey will have been worth it, end quote. That's wonderful. Yeah, and that's the story of Terry Joe Duprall, her family, Mary Dean, and the Bluebell. Wow. I love that it ended on that note. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I love that too. So like she was only eleven when all of this happened. Yeah. And I just think she's amazing. She just like the way that she kept her wits about her, how she didn't give in to anything, how she just fought. Mm-hmm. And um can reflect on it so long later after living like a nice, fulfilling, happy life and just being like, yo, don't ever feel sorry for me. Yeah. And like, also, <laughs> if I can come back from this, so so can you. Yeah. Yeah. Picks, she picks up other people along the way as well. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, just, I uh, just have two like fun facts, I guess. To, oh, I to love fun off. facts. Hit me with the fun facts. So the first one is that cork float. You know? Yeah. How could we forget it? When the crew on the Captain Theo retri- like saved Terry Joe from the water, they didn't retrieve the float. They just took her off of it and let it go to sea. So it had drifted for like about four days. And then a member of the Coast Guard located it and retrieved it from the ocean. And as soon as he grabbed it out of the water and held it, it disintegrated and completely fell apart. Oh my god! How long? How long did it float for? Four days. Four days after, after. it was. Oh god! And that's like, because good on that ship. Because no one was on it, so yeah. it was just drifting aimlessly. But as soon as he like put any sort of pressure on it, pulled it out of the water, it just crumbled. crumbled yeah. And like disintegrated. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. That it really was not made to last. And who knows how much time she really would have had. Because at this point, before she was... No, not much at all. Because before she was saved, she was having to balance herself so awkwardly because the cork was falling off and the the meshing was falling off. Mm -hmm. And then the last little fun fact, the Captain Theo, the ship, it was originally named HMS Searcher, and it was a Royal Navy ruler-class escort carrier Mm -hmm. launched in 1942. And it served in World War II from 1943 to 1945. Yeah. But it was decommissioned and sold into merchant service yeah. in 1952. 
and then its name was changed to Captain Theo. It was sold again in 1966 and became Oriental Banker. Ooh. But it was scrapped in Taiwan in 1976. Yeah. But that's a good run, right? That's a really good run for 42 a ship. 42 to 76. That's a great run for a ship, yeah. And the um, article I was reading about it when it was uh, serving in the war, it was like involved in some sort of like wicked submarine battle. Ooh. Yeah. So those, I was, are, those are scary. I'll let you go down a rabbit hole for that because oh, I'm not we're about going to down, sit here. Right. Periscopes <laughs> down. I'm not about to sit here and try and talk subs with you because you just, <laughs> I couldn't keep up. <laughs> and I have, I, I'll have to figure out a way to list my sources. But I used um, an article from vintage, vintage.es, yeah. Wikipedia, take me back, dot two. Mm hmm. Mental floss and God updates. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. God updates. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so all of those sources help me read the book and yeah. or help me uh, write this article. And I hope to read the book. Um, can, there was like some copies on uh, U.S. Amazon, mm -hmm. but they're like used, so people had insane prices for them. Oh yeah. But I'm sure I can get like an audiobook. Yeah, I'm sure there's the audiobook, or maybe they'll some places even print it for you. That's I true. Know, I used to work in a spot that did that. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. If anybody wants to read more about Tear Teary Joe's story, definitely go and read that. Go read her book. It's called Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean. There we go. So go and find her memoir and check that out because I know I will. And then maybe one day in a future episode, I'll let you know how it was. Yeah. So that's the story of Terry Joe. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. So stay tuned. Thank you so much for sticking with our pilot episode. Yeah. Thank you, Dyson, for being my producer. Yeah. Working on the ones and twos. Working on the ones and twos. <laughs> not, not adding them together. <laughs> Working on them. Working not on added it. up yet, but that's why this is a test pilot we'll run. Fix it in post. We'll fix it in post. Don't tell us about it if you didn't like it. You can tell. <laughs> and... Yeah, maybe we'll even one day have like a catchy little sign off slogan. Oh yeah, like catch you on the ones and twos. Catch <laughs> what? Catch you on the dark side. Ooh. Oh. So oh. that's the flip side. You're it's... supposed to give the good one when you're saying you haven't found it. All right. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Cut that, cut that, cut that. Cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. But no, seriously. But seriously, okay. So like thanks so much for tuning in. This has been Dark Adaptation. Mm. And I'll catch you on the dark side. We got a really, really prideful captain who obviously goes down with the ship. Yeah, that's right. The captain should go down with the ship. Yeah, really and, dramatically. And I just have to be this person. So there's a ton of flares used when the Titanic went down. Oh. <laughs> I think I think the story was that another ship went past the Titanic, and I'm pretty sure they said they thought it was fireworks. Mm. It probably Which was fireworks, actually. Can fact check me, because I think everyone and their, and their great-great-great-grandmothers know, probably only great-grandmothers, know that what happened with the Titanic. We'll be able to correct them. Everyone will. People know the Titanic, and they know Leo. Mm. Oh, little segue here. Leo could have fit on that fucking door. And <laughs> she fucking knows it.
<laughs> she just hid the evidence at the end of the goddamn movie and just tossed the fucking books over. And now our special guest, Leo! Leo, come out here. We're gonna ask you a really important question. Yeah, my first question I got here. Uh, why do you think that she let everyone just sit and listen to her whole fucking story while they just wanted to find the necklace only to then get up and huck it overboard? Because <laughs> old ladies are assholes. Oh, I'm oh, just kidding. Hot take, hot take. <laughs> but I agree. <laughs> okay, okay. So this, after he tells them like, okay, yeah, it's, it's, it's true, it's true. I feel true. bad. If there's an old lady listening to this, I love you. You're great. Well, I'm sure you're wonderful. We've been around the block. They should understand sarcasm by now. Yeah. <laughs> or they're just going to roll up on my street and beat the shit out of me. <laughs> I'll be out there like, world star. <laughs> That'll be exclusive, exclusive video on our social feed. Follow us on Instagram, Dark Adaptation Podcast. <laughs>